0: He is. He is worthy. That's why we're here this morning. It's because he's worthy. Church family, thank you for approving last week the uh, uh, motion to bring Reedy Fork Baptist Church under the leadership of Lawndale Baptist Church. That was approved at a 90% vote. And so we're thankful for the opportunity that God has given us to multiply the work that we're doing here in Greensboro. And of course, we want that to be all across the world, that we're able to let people know that he's worthy. Jesus is worthy of our worship, our lives, our all. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not really a right or wrong thing to stand For the reading of God's Word, the Bible, but I wanted our first series together as a church family to really focus on the fact that this is God's Word, and when God speaks, we want to listen. We want to hear Him. We want to reverence Him, what He thinks, and especially His Word. It's easy that we would get caught up in preferences, opinions, and traditions, but we have one king, and this is his book. And this is what he says. Stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. In the presence of many witnesses, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer this morning. Father, we, we believe this book is yours. We believe that it's what you, the creator of the universe, has made known to us about yourself. We thank you for that one story within this book of, of redemption. What all you did to create us so that we could experience and enjoy your your grace and your generosity and your glory. And then what you did to restore us, even after the fall, even after We chose to go our own way. Your plan to restore humanity to yourself through the sending of your Son, His death, and His resurrection. And we pray that as we study this text of Scripture this morning, that we would hear it as Your Word, that we would obey it as Your Word, that we would reverence You because You've spoken to us. Give us understanding, give us wisdom that we would know how to live our lives for you and for you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God is the one who gave us emotions. It's part of how we experience life. It's not wrong to have emotions. In a perfect world, they help us to experience life to its fullest. The creator of the world created us like this. But in a fallen world, we struggle to know how to handle them well. All it took for Marty McFly to trigger his emotions was to be called chicken. And we think how ridiculous that is, but yet all it takes for us is for someone to intentionally or unintentionally make a wrong move in traffic and look at us. We tend to use our emotions in a very self-serving way, we're we're self-centered. So think for a minute: what makes you fight? What makes you fighting mad? What gets you uh, bawling? What gets you going? And oftentimes, it all comes back to being selfish. Can we rise above the self-exalting, the self-protecting, and the self-centered pride that we have? And the answer is no. We can't. Left to ourselves we would be hopeless in all things, especially with our emotions. But with God, all things are possible. When I think about the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, we look at a man like Joshua, who led the children of Israel to conquer the promised land, and a man who would say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I think about a warrior king like David, who was known as a man after God's own heart, but also as a man who slayed his thousands it's that warrior that God calls all of us to and so how does that apply now though to followers of Christ how do followers of Christ fight Jesus cleaned the temple out the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and to serve and not be served He saw so the line of the tribe of Judah not a soft, weak, peace-at-any-price kind of man, but perfectly acted on his emotions with control and purpose. Think with me before we get into our text, two cross-references to help us a little bit this morning, to think about fighting. What causes you to fight? How do followers of Christ fight? Ephesians 6 Paul is writing to Timothy who is pastoring Ephesus. Later he wrote a book to the Ephesian church. And notice what he said about fighting in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Before we fight, we should know who our enemy is. It's not our circumstances, it's not the people around us, it's the devil himself, the deceiver. And the fallen angels, the demons that followed him as they were cast out of heaven in their rebellion. Another text that Paul wrote is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 4. It's not only appropriate that we would understand who the right enemy is, but what the right weapons are that we fight with. And this is what Paul said in another text. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds that's the kind of weaponry I want. If I'm going into battle, and it's a spiritual battle, I need spiritual weapons to fight this battle. Paul tells Timothy in this text to fight. He tells him to fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, by his nature, probably would have chosen to be a lot more passive. He would have been a lot more laid back. He would have chosen to kind of coast and not really ruffle many feathers. But Paul tells him to fight the good fight of the faith. It's not a passive fight. It's an active fight. And even as we began to look at our text this morning, we're going to see some things that may seem a little bit strange to be told if we're in a fight. So look with me in verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 6 again. And I want you to see our First point this morning, some fights you run from. This is what a man of God flees from. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy, this pastor of the church at Ephesus. And he calls him, but you, O man of God. And, And the but is there for a reason because it's contrasting just what he had said about the false teachers. Timothy's not to act like the false teachers. He's to do something completely different in his life. And part of the right way to fight is to run. Have you ever fought your best by running from the fight? Now that's not true in all circumstances, but there's some fights that you just avoid. There's some you just run from. And instead of our internalizing some some of the doctrines and practices that the world would have for us to try and infiltrate our church family instead of being a church that is built on sound doctrine, we're to run from those things. It's what Paul was telling the church at Ephesus, what he was telling Timothy and how to lead the church. But you, old man of God... Flee these things. Run from them. Don't let them impact and influence your ministry and the ministry that is to take place within the church. What, what are these things? What, are, what is Timothy running from? Flee these things. And for the most part, it's referring to what last week was discussed in verses 3 through 10. If you're going to test leaders, you test them according to sound doctrine. So we would run from anything that leads to a different doctrine. You see that in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, it does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And so we're looking for right belief and right behavior that leads together, that, that works together. And when that's not true, then run from that. That's, that's not what we're about in God's church. As the king of the church, Jesus himself, the head of the church, leads, we're to be about sound doctrine and sound living. Both should measure up. What we believe about God, we should live up to. What we think about God, we should live up to. Run from anything that leads to a, down, sound, to a different doctrine, Some songs we will not sing at Lawndale because they lead to a different doctrine. Some people will not serve in a pastoral role at Lawndale because they teach a different doctrine. Some will not teach life journey group classes or others because they believe a different doctrine than what is true according to the Word of God. We're commanded to protect the church, to shepherd the church, to protect it according to sound doctrine. And Paul is telling Timothy, to run away from anything. Don't associate, don't be connected to, don't compromise your doctrine. And then, run away from anything that leads to a different devotion. You see, part of the test of being a leader is sound doctrine, belief that leads to the right behavior, but it's also a contentment, godliness with contentment. If we're not careful, we will begin to love other things over our king. I think that's part of the downfall of the church of 2021, is that we're chasing after things more than we're chasing after our king. And so therefore, churches can make decisions based on numbers or dollars, as, of, as opposed to what God has said for the church to do and to be. Anytime we're we're driven by something that's more than what God has said, then we've lost our devotion, our pure devotion, our simple devotion to our one true King. There's a lot of pressure today from churches to live in a consumeristic mentality, to lead from the consumer. What do the people want as opposed to what God wants? Being man centered as opposed to being God centered. Giving people what pleases man instead of what pleases God. And Paul said to Timothy, Flee these things. Anything that will lead you from a different doctrine, anything that will lead you to a different devotion. Later on in his second letter to Timothy, he said, Timothy, you're, you're living in a time of itching ears. People want to hear what they want to hear. Don't give in to it. Preach the truth. Stand on the truth. Flee from those things. One way to summarize this first point this morning, let me just put it in words. If you're fighting for King Jesus, if you're in his army, one of his soldiers You'll be careful not to get entangled in things that require contradiction or compromise to your commitment to Him and His Word. Church, we're subject to a good, gracious, glorious King. He demands and deserves our all. Flee from these things. Fight well for your King by by protecting and by fleeing from these things. Secondly, some fights you run to. You can't avoid. You take head on. This is what a man of God follows after. So this is what he flees from. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Secondly, pursue. Follow after. Go after this. Fight for these things. Six things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Let's be known more of what we fight for as opposed to what we fight against. Again, I, I think it's easy as a church family to start being known for what we fight against. And there's some things that we would fight against, but we would we should be more known for what we, what we fight for. And in this text, instead of saying change your circumstances, instead of saying a lot of political or uh, a lot of even uh, cultural battles to fight, You know where where Paul tells Timothy to start? In his own life. Your own walk. Become the kind of people that God intends for you to be. You you see, that's where where God begins to do incredible work when people really become light and salt. and They begin to to fight for these things in in their own lives. So, So follow after this. Follow after righteousness. Righteousness is doing what's right in God's eyes. It's the standard of God. Not a worldly righteousness. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, that's a good man or that's a good woman according to worldly standards. You know, in other words, they're trying to live a good life, trying not to hurt anybody. And, and when we think biblically about that, there are none that are good. Not one. We're all sinners. We're all lost in and of ourselves. So it's not a worldly righteousness of just trying to be a good person. It's not even a self-righteousness of of trying to attain some kind of right standing with God on our own because we can't. The most religious people in the world, remember what Jesus said to them in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the uh, the, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, there's a self-righteousness that did not cut it. But there is this righteousness that comes from God. And once it's, it's imputed, it's given at the time we receive Christ, at the time we surrender to his lordship and place our faith in his death and resurrection, we're given the righteousness of Christ. But then it's also Worked out. It's lived out. We work out our salvation. We grow in it. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Are we living our lives according to what is right in God's eyes? Godliness. Pursue righteousness, but pursue godliness. Godliness is an obedience to God, Godliness is is acting like Him and it's living in such a way that there's nothing else worth living for but for the glory of God a godly life it's as paul told the philippian church to live as christ everything is about him my life revolves around him it's to live as christ and to die's gain i'm willing to give up everything for him and i know that when i stand before him it'll all be worth it pursue godliness thirdly pursue faith faith is trust in god one step at a time that's faith isn't it because humanly i i want to know what's coming next can you tell me what's happening next can you tell me how that's going to result can you tell me if we do this what's going to happen after that and faith steps out and takes one step at a time god you've called us you've said this we're going to obey you one step at a time, one day at a time, leaving the consequences with God. I can't always tell you that when you obey God that it's all going to turn out great. Sometimes it seems like life falls apart when you obey God. That's why we we have a story like Job. That's why we have texts like in, in Habakkuk the prophet that though the fig tree doesn't bud and all the things in life aren't going my way, yet I'll still rejoice in God. It's focusing on Him. It's faith. Trust in God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and pursue love. That's affection for God. That's the foundation of life. How else can we live? How else can we follow Christ if we don't love Him? We love Him because He first loved us. God's love for us will never change. He loves us perfectly because He is perfection. He'll never love us more. He'll never love us less. Our life, though, is learning more about his love. How can I love him more? Because of his great love and because of what he's done for me, how can I love him more? That's the Christian life. I'm pursuing that. We're to, we're to pursue that, our, our affection for God. It gives us the motivation for everything that we do. There's a lot that's been said so far in this book in 1 Timothy. And, and we have 65 more books to go after this one, right? There's a lot here. What motivates us to study this book and to learn and to grow and to be the people of God was the love of God. Look at what He's done for us. Pursue love. Pursue steadfastness. That's the fifth thing. That's endurance from God. There's, There's no turning back when you've entered in this relationship with God. Once He's put you in the palm of His hand, His love, nothing can separate you from His love. And that endurance is that when obstacles come... Instead of being stumbling blocks that get in the way and make you stop, they become stepping stones. One more way that God's at work in your life, teaching you and growing you and using you for his glory. Steadfastness. And lastly, gentleness. Pursue this. Follow after this. Gentleness. Gentleness, another word that Could be used here and is in some translations as meekness. It's that wild horse with all that energy, all of that potential, all of that strength bridled and tamed. And so God has bridled us and tamed us. We gladly are his servants. We're gladly saying, Master, where next? What next? How next? And it's all the potential that he's created us with that's controlled for his glory by his spirit, gentleness. We're never out of control or reckless. We're always under his control. So again, another way to summarize the second point. Some, some fights you run to, you follow after. Think about what your aim in life is. What are you striving to do and to become? If you're fighting on behalf of King Jesus, you'll pursue strive for be desperate even for righteousness godliness faith love steadfastness and gentleness church fight for your king he's worthy give your life up for him he's called you into relationship with you and it's a high and a holy calling now live up Be worthy of that calling that he's given you. And again, I I just want you to notice for a minute. He's getting ready to say really clearly to Timothy, fight. And in this context, he's not telling him to fight with the world and to fight uh, for all the things and the ways that the world would fight. He's saying, your way is. Is to let God do His good work in your life, Timothy. Fight for these things. Give yourself to righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, let me give you one more thing this morning. Some fights you run with, you run with others. You're not alone. You've you've got the great king who's leading out in charge for the battle, Jesus himself. And he has a, a host of others who are fighting with him. Not only angelic, but brothers and sisters in Christ who fight for this same king. Some fights you run with. And this is what a man of God fights for. Notice in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Flee these things Follow after these things and fight the good fight of the faith. Now, this idea of faith is different than the idea of faith in verse 11. Notice it has that definite article with it, which generally means truth. Fight for the truth. Fight the good fight of the faith. What we hold true to be about God. Fight the good fight. There are a lot of bad fights to fight. There are a lot of inferior fights to fight. There are a lot of worthless fights to fight. But when you're fighting for your king, it's always worth it. Notice the truth about the king. There is a king. Jesus is the king. He eternally existed with his Father in heaven. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in eternity past, God knew that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, would come to earth to die for sin. God knew that, and he created us anyway because he is such a generous God. He desired to share himself with us. It's a good fight of faith. It's a good opportunity to live and to have being and to know a great God. The truth about the king. Notice also the life with the king. He says, take hold of the eternal life. I I love how he describes life here. It's not temporary life with Jesus. It's not conditional life with Jesus. It's eternal. When you place your faith in Christ, he gives you eternal life. Your life, your new life starts at that moment, and it will extend through eternity. You've been made a part of his eternal spiritual family Take hold of the eternal life. Enjoy it. Live up to it. Abide in him. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So it was the calling of salvation and there's the confession before many witnesses. Now some would say that was his baptism because others would have gathered and they would have seen. Timothy had made a, a profession of faith, he had accepted Christ, he had surrendered his life, he had said, I'm all in, I place my faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, I confess him as Lord, and in baptism, there would have been witnesses around that. I, I tend to think, though, that what he's referring to is more of his ordination, when the body of elders, as Paul has already alluded to, laid their hands on him, and he made his confession, I'm all in, I'm serving. I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do. He was committing to being a man of God. He was being acknowledged before the congregation of God. But he was also making a confession that he was going to serve God with his whole heart. He was going to be faithful to the calling on his life. This again has to do with the life with the king. The eternal life to which you are called. We live in it. We enjoy it. We obey our king, and of course that leads us to the way of the king. In verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. You want to know where life comes from? It comes from God, from conception on. God is the giver of life. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Who should take life away? God should take life away. God is the giver of life. He is the one in control of life. And Paul is saying, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who is his, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now what confession did Jesus make before Pontius Pilate? I think one thing that we can definitely say is when Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king? And Jesus said, you said it. Maybe not in that tone. (laughs) But he affirmed. He was the king. He made himself known. He made that confession. I can bank on it because from eternity past, God had a plan. I can bank on it because hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before this Messiah, this king came, said and, and told how he would come, what it would be like, details of what that coming would be like, And then, of course, we see that being played out very accurately in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels as we see this king come. We see his story. The confession is right. It is good. And the way of the king, not only because of his confession, but because of God's overarching sovereign plan. Notice what Paul said to Timothy then in verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way of the King. Keep the commandment. Now what does he mean by keep the commandment? Could it be that it had something specific to do with Timothy's call? Yes. Could it have something to do with the overarching view of Scripture, the commandment? This is the revealed will of God. Possibly, and I think we can make a case for that, I probably would come back and say the greatest commandment. I think that's what he's alluding to. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Be willing to give everything, Timothy, to this great God. Just as the people of God in the Old Testament were instructed in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And then as Jesus reiterated that in Matthew 22 when he was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You see, that's the way of the king. When we love him well, we obey him. We follow him. We keep the commandment. I could summarize this in two ways. One, just by John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But listen to this statement as well. You are not alone in your fight. You are fighting for your king. But your king is with you in the fight and has already won the victory. I love fighting a fight I've already won. As some have said, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting for our king, but we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Isn't that good? The battle's already been won. We, we know the end of the story. It's already been recorded. It's written in ink and stone and there's nothing that will ever pass away from the word of God and how it's already been recorded. We're fighting for our king. And I've got some good news for you. We're, we're not gonna lose this. We've already won. I'm glad we're fighting with our king. I'm glad he's with us, beside us. Now, overall, as Paul is closing out this letter to Timothy, to me, this is part of the why. This is why we do what we do. Again, there's a lot contained here. Some of this makes us feel uncomfortable. Some of this causes us to rethink how we're doing life and how we're doing church and how we see the world. This is This is not easy to absorb the very words of God because we're so accustomed to living in this world and according to worldly values and ideas, we're constantly being pressured to conform to this world. And when we come to the word of God, some of it strikes us very differently and makes us uncomfortable and calls us to a life of inconvenience and sacrifice And service and death to self. And it's like Paul is saying, but but this is why, Timothy, it's not for what you get out of it, it's not for the applause of people, it's for the glory of God. You serve a great king, Timothy. This is this is why we do what we do. And Paul, is he gets ready to conclude the letter, does what most pastors do in conclusion and then has two more sermons to go. But notice in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. Jesus is going to come back at the proper time. When it's planned, he's sovereign. He who is, now notice, notice these attributes, these characteristics, these praiseworthy perfections of Jesus. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Jesus is in control. I know sometimes it seems like that your life is out of control. I know sometimes it seems like certain people that you don't want to be in control seem to be in control. But guess what? God's in control. He is the blessed, he's the only one we'll find joy and purpose and meaning in. He is the blessed and he's the only sovereign. Nobody else is calling the shots. There's no person behind the curtain somewhere. It's God himself who is in heaven and he's in control of all that's happening here on earth. Because we make choices, sometimes it's hard and there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of difficulty on earth, no doubt. God... God allows us to have the fruit of our choices and our decisions. And because we're in a fallen world that is being attacked constantly by this roaring lion, the devil, there's a lot of suffering and problems. But it's not always going to be like that. There's a new world coming. And this life is preparation for that next. Are you living for the king are you bowing your knee to the king now? Are you confessing the king as your Lord now? Because one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's sovereign. He's also King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That means he rules all over all earthly rulers. It doesn't matter what king, what president, what prime minister is in charge in whatever country. I know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is the one we serve. He is, our citizenship is in heaven. We're good citizens of earth and we try to follow the the laws of the land to the best of our ability, but there's a greater, higher law because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He has immortality, the text tells us. In other words, he's not subject to the laws of this world. He's not flesh. He won't die. He is eternal from the past and in the present and the future. He has immortality and he dwells in unapproachable light. He's too pure for sinful human eyes. We cannot, as long as we live in the flesh on earth, lay eyes on God. We would die on the spot. We would blow up on the spot to see that kind of holiness and purity. And the only way we can even know him and come to the throne of grace is because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the imputed righteousness. God invites us to know Him. God says, I want you to be my son or my daughter. I want you to be children of God. I want you to be in my family. But you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. You can't do it yourself. You cannot uh, see Him, you cannot know Him. He dwells in unapproachable light only through the shed blood and the power of the resurrection. Can anyone be in his family and know him? And one day, because of what he's done for us, we'll be able to see him because he'll change us completely. How could anybody choose anything else to give their lives to than this king? This is the why. One more summary statement to finish this third point. When we consider this high and holy God who is over all and above all And think of how he took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Our minds can scarce take it in. It's why we preach the gospel. It's why we meditate on the gospel. It's why we grow deeper in the gospel. We never outgrow it because it's such an unbelievable thought that a holy God, Jesus, would take on human flesh and come and dwell among us. You may have picked up on that last phrase from a famous hymn that we sing from time to time written at least the original part in 1885. Listen, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Over 130 years later, 2018, another song expressing very similar sentiment. Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell among us? He does. From every tribe and people, every nation and tongue, He made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? he is. Pray with me. Father, as we consider these truths of how great you are, it humbles us. It makes us more mindful of the fact that we don't deserve an opportunity to know you, to love you, and to enjoy you. Yet out of your graciousness, you sent your Son to die on a cross, to be resurrected so that we could have life eternal life with you forever. I pray that in these moments that you would overwhelm every man, woman, boy and girl who've gathered in this place this morning, who are even watching online this morning with that kind of unbelievable, indescribable love. And I pray that there would be people who would surrender all this morning not because there's been an eloquent message, not because there's been a beautiful building, not because of any aesthetic or human means, but only because your spirit awakens dead men and women, boys and girls, to the truth of your love and the glory of your gospel. Lord, would you do that in this moment? We'll give you all the glory because only you deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.